Well, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be wanting for anything that I might need. Well, he makes me lie down in the pastures so green, and he leads me beside quiet streams. He restores my soul. He restores my soul. He restores my soul. He restores my soul. Well, He guides me in paths of His righteousness, and it's all for the sake of His name. Even though I might walk through the valley so dark, in His presence I'll not be afraid. He restores my soul. He restores my soul. He restores my soul. Restores my soul. His rod and his staff, they comfort me, leading this wayward sheep. He prepares a great table, a banquet before me, while enemies watch in dismay. With the oil of kindness, he christens my head, while my cup overflows with his grace. He restores my soul. He restores my soul. He restores my soul. And mercy will chase after me all the rest of the days of my life. And I'll dwell in his presence, the home he has promised forever in him I'll abide.
Well, good morning. I'm always grateful when I get to play with Chad. Uh, musical instruments. We haven't played in the sandbox in quite a while, but we, I, just, I just enjoy the fact that he would sit up here and stand up here and play mandolin, and uh, that's just a treat. So, is that fine? Yeah. I want to do this. Uh, we're in a series called Standing Strong, and we're in the book of First Peter. If this is your first time here this morning, I want to welcome you. If you're in the venue this morning, I want to vel welcome you. Welcome you. <laughs> welcome you this morning. Uh, I want to just say I'm glad you're here. <laughs> and uh, for those of you uh, just who've been in this series, this is going to be a little different this morning. We are actually going to chapter 5 of First Peter. Uh, we are going to be in chapter 4 sometime. Uh, before Jesus comes. Uh, Rick is coming back in a couple weeks, and uh, he wanted to actually be uh, the one preaching out of 1 Peter 4, so we're going to 1 Peter 5, so don't think we just tore it out of our Bibles and decided it wasn't worth anything. Um, we're actually going to get there, so we're going backwards, going forwards, backwards. You'll be all over the place by the time we're through. Um, but as we do this this morning, I want to uh, take a moment and pray, and then after I pray, I'm going to read the text to you, and one of the great things about uh, having somebody read the text to you is it gives you the opportunity to listen. And I would hope that you would take that opportunity. Uh, just maybe close your eyes and listen, and maybe there's something that God would just kind of lift out of that listening moment that he wants to say to you in that moment. And uh, so let me pray for us, and then I'll read the text. And so we'll be in First Peter 5. Father, we are grateful to gather here in your presence this morning. What a remarkable thing to think of all the ways that you care for our lives. We walked in this morning, Lord, not probably aware of even a minutia of those things and ways that you care. Lord, you love us. You're compassionate. You're merciful. Uh, we walk in undeserving, and yet you value us and chose to send your only son to die for us. This morning, Lord, I pray that we would have ears to hear, that you'd give us just that thing that is for us this morning, whatever that might be. May it be your word that is heard this morning. Would you help each heart here to sort through all that is said to find that thing that is from you for them. And Lord, I pray that for myself as well. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. 1 Peter 5, 1 to 7, goes like this. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing as God wants you to be. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. 
Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Oftentimes when I'm in conversations with people, I always want to find, you know, kind of end the conversation with some wonderful statement, some piece of wisdom, some wonderful pithy phrase that's going to leave them feeling like, like I'm the most wise, wonderful person in the world. And it uh, doesn't happen very often, I can just tell you that right now. But I was uh, running across some things. I, my daughter said, Dad, I, I found these, I uh, was on the internet, and I, she read them to me, and they, they just made me laugh. They were uh, proverbs that kind of first graders came up with. They were based, I think, on other proverbs or other kind of sayings that might be familiar to us, you know. Uh, and uh, yet they had kind of given them the first half and said, finish this. And so these are how they finished these little proverbs, these little sayings. And I just thought we'd listen this morning because I'm up here and you're listening and I get to talk. Uh, they go like this. Here's the first one. Don't change horses until they stop running. <laughs> There's now logic for you. Strike while the bug is close. Okay? Don't bite the hand that looks dirty. <laughs> you can't teach an old dog new math. <laughs> and if you lie down with dogs, you'll stink in the morning. <laughs> A penny saved is not much. And children should be seen and not spanked or grounded. <laughs> you get out of something only what you see in the picture on the box. <laughs> and then probably my favorite was this one. When the blind lead the blind, get out of the way. You know, you come to the chapter 5 of 1 Peter, he is finishing up something. He is drawing some conclusions at the end of things that he has said. All throughout this book, he has been trying to nurture, encourage, and care for a group of people who have been in difficult circumstances. It is not easy to be where they are. And in the midst of that, he's been trying to help them be encouraged, to understand the right kinds of things. And so as he comes to the end of the chapter, he's giving them some final pieces of wisdom, of encouragement. But this is not just Peter's encouragement and Peter's wisdom. This is the wisdom of God that he's bringing to bear on this situation, on these people. This is God speaking. And in that, he chooses to use a particular metaphor, a particular way of seeing things that is kind of there throughout the whole of the scriptures. In the Old Testament, God often described uh, people in Israel as shepherds. You had Moses shepherding, shepherding his father-in-law's flock. You have David writing uh, what's called the shepherd psalm in the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd. You have God talking about the kings of Israel as shepherds. That's often a way they were described. 
You go into the New Testament, you have Jesus describing himself as the good shepherd, the one who cares for his sheep. You have Jesus standing with Peter at the end, just before he's ascending into heaven. And as he stands with Peter there, he says, Peter, do you love me? And then he says, feed my sheep, take care of my sheep, shepherd my sheep. And finally, you come to the book of 1 Peter, and how does Peter end what he wants to say? He says, shepherd. That metaphor is very significant, but what you begin to understand is, is that this is something that God really wants to see happen throughout the life of his people. When the idea of shepherding is discussed by Peter, this isn't necessarily a new thought that he's having, but it comes out of the rich soil of what has already been spoken throughout Scripture. When he thinks of shepherding, he remembers that Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. He remembers this conversation about, will you feed my sheep? It's not coming out of a vacuum. So I want to share a couple things this morning out of this text that, that, first of all, are going to shape and define and maybe govern a bit how I'm going to share the rest of the text to you. And there are two things that I want to share. And the first one is this. They're kind of these two important truths. First, it has been and still is and always will be God's flock. This is God's flock. I stand in the pulpit this morning, I look out at a group of people, it's easy to figure that you're mine today, but you're not. You belong to God. This is God's flock. Peter says it this way, in verse 2, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care. Right out of the gate, he wants to make sure they understand who they are and who they belong to. You are God's flock. In the book of Ezekiel, when God is describing the shepherds of Israel, he has some harsh things to say about them. They've not done a very good job. But he says this then. God the master says, from now on, I myself am the shepherd. I am going looking for them. As shepherds go after their flocks when they get scattered, I am going after my sheep. I'll rescue them from all the places they've been scattered to, scattered to in the storms. I'll bring them back from foreign peoples, gather them from foreign countries, and bring them back to their home country. I'll feed them on the mountains of Israel, along the streams, among their own people. I'll lead them into lush pastures so they can roam the mountain pastures of Israel, graze at leisure, and feed in the rich pastures on the mountains of Israel." And I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I'm, will, I myself will make sure they get plenty of rest. I'll go after the lost. I'll collect the strays. I'll doctor the injured. I'll build up the weak ones and oversee the strong ones so they're not exploited. Do you get the sense that these are God's sheep and that he's going to do some incredible things with them? You go on and Jesus in the New Testament, the Gospel of John, I mentioned this already. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd puts the sheep before himself, sacrifices himself if necessary. Later in the chapter in 1 Peter 5, Peter uses a particular term. It's archepoimen. It is a Greek word that basically means prototype. Prototype. 
And in describing Jesus as the chief shepherd, he is saying, or he's saying, this is the prototype of shepherding. God has the understanding of what it means to be a shepherd. God has the understanding of how to shepherd well. If we are going to think about shepherding at all, wise to look at the one who understands it the best. So Peter says, watch the prototype. When he says, shepherd the flock among you, he's not saying you don't have any clues to how you do this. You just got to keep watching the prototype. Be mindful of the chief shepherd. When we think of that idea that this is God's flock, what you need to remember is that that invests great value in you. For God to say that you belong to him should give you a great sense of security. It should give you a great sense of I'm in the right hands, in the best hands. Who better than God knows how to take care of life? the life that he has created, the life that he sees with value. There's no better place to be than in the hands of the one to whom this flock belongs. This is God's flock. The second thing I want you to think about this morning, a second truth I want you to keep in mind, a principal virtue expressing God's shepherd heart toward his flock is humility. Humility. The Greek, for, uh, Greek word for humility basically means to be low or to be under. It means taking the lower position. And I don't know about you, but for me, humility is not necessarily the first place I go in my thinking. It is not easy for me. Even thinking about humility sets me off a bit because I love to be recognized. I think if I'm kind of honest about how I like to be described before people. I want to be described kind of by words like effective. You know, he's highly effective. He's industrious. He's visionary. He's engaging. He's creative. As well as good looking. <laughs> I know that more than anything else, what God wants from me is that I would be humble. I know that he wants my life to be shaped by humility. And the interesting thing is he has remarkable ways of bringing me to that place. I remember when my uh, youngest daughter was in preschool. Uh, she, uh, her name is Katie. She is now uh, uh, getting her doctorate in psychology. And after preschool, I can see why she's getting a doctorate in psychology. So she uh, was asking me, inviting me to come to one of those uh, bring your dad to school days, okay? I, I don't know if you've had those kind of moments in your life. But I was on the road a lot during my time before I was here at this church. I basically traveled and did some speaking and some music, that kinds of things. So I was all over the place. I was always grateful for the moments my schedule seemed to line up with my daughter's schedule and I could do these kinds of things, be a father, and so she had invited me. She was very excited. They had done this thing where they had each student draw a picture of their dad. You can imagine what that looked like. But you, each student is drawing this picture of their dad and then draw, writing a little description. What does your dad do? Okay. So we arrived at this uh, particular day and came on, you know, 
daughter bring dad to school day, and I walked in the door of her preschool, and all around uh, the walls were those pictures that these kids had drawn. It was really kind of a cool thing. And there were all these dads there, you know, kind of. But they all seemed to be concentrated around one picture. And I kind of walked in, and I was a little bit late, and I walked in, and I noticed that they're concentrated around this one picture, and I looked at the picture, and there was this guy with a beard in the picture. And I looked around the room, and I realized I was the only guy with a beard there. And I thought, okay, you know, if I'm looking for attention, this is great. They're all looking at me. And that was kind of fun, and I had got to savor that for all of maybe a second. And then I walked a little closer, and I kind of really saw what was so intriguing. Because underneath that picture of me was this little, her description of what does your dad do? My dad lays at home on the couch all day long, eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, <laughs> watching TV, <laughs> and spanks me. Seriously. Not only was I some sort of lazy couch potato, but I was abusive as well. I looked around the room, and to my horror, every guy in the room was looking for the guy with the beard. Needless to say, I did not stay long that day. God has remarkable ways of making me humble. Remarkable ways of forming in me the very thing that he really longs for me to express in my life. That sense of humility. Peter says in verse 5 of chapter 5, all of you, all of you clothe yourself with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. All of you clothe yourself with humility. Peter seems to make humility this thread that is woven through all these relational places, woven through all the flock of God, all the ways they're responding. Humility seems to be this constant in all their lives. It is what Jesus demonstrated to Peter in the upper room when he washed the disciples' feet. Listen to the account from John. He says, so Jesus got up from the meal. He took off his outer clothing and he wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. And then Jesus said this, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, the Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. One of the interesting things in the text we have in 1 Peter is, is that the word to clothe comes from a Greek root word that basically describes or is associated with an apron that the slave would wear when he is washing the feet. Of those that come into the house. 
Peter is inviting us, in a sense, to do the very thing that he had Jesus do to him or that Jesus did to him in washing his feet. Peter is inviting us to take on the role and the actions of the slave in the way that we relate to one another. He's inviting us, in a sense, to wrap the, the apron around our waist and to come before others, not in the position that we are entitled to something, but in the position of the one who is giving humbly to others. One of the other ways that this is described in, throughout the scriptures is with the idea of sackcloth and ashes. It's the way that oftentimes people would express repentance in their life. It was a way of saying that I am down here on the lower side of things. It was a way of humbling themselves. Now, I don't know about you, but the idea of going out in sackcloth and ashes doesn't really rate high in my mind. It is not the fashion statement that really I want to make. And I so often want to discard those clothing, that clothing, for the clothing that makes me look good. But the way of Jesus is humility. The way of Jesus is that apron of the slave. Paul put it this way. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. You see, where humility is found, God's mercy and compassion and his care seem to operate more freely. Where humility is present, I really believe that transformation is possible. But you see, when pride and ego are in operation, transformation just becomes difficult. And I believe that God longs to transform us more into his image. So how are you clothing yourself with humility? How are you sensing that you're taking that towel, wrapping it around your waist that you might care for others in humility? If the flock belongs to God and is to be characterized by humility, then how can we function appropriately in God's flock? I want to suggest it's by heeding three imperatives. And I want to share those three imperatives with you now. And the first one is by heeding the imperative to lead humbly. So Peter said, be shepherds. In other words, that's the term for leadership that we often see. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care. Watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. I remember when I was doing youth ministry, I had a guy that came 
and he was so excited because he really wanted to be part of the leadership team. He just thought, you know, there's something cool about being a leader. And I think oftentimes we have those kinds of pictures in my mind or in our minds of what it means to lead and people looking to you for wisdom and for, you know, that counsel or whatever else they might be looking to you. It's wonderful to be looked up to. And this guy, I think he had some sense of that, and he was a great guy. God had been doing great things, and there was no reason not to make him part of this team. But I remember the first night that he came to actually be in that role of a leader at an event, and we were out with a bunch of students, and uh, some water had spilled out on a deck area, and it was slick, and we were potentially looking at uh, issues of liability and insurance, death, you know, all those things as kids might run through and slip and kill themselves. And uh, so I looked at this guy. His name is Mike. I said, Mike, could you go grab a, a mop and clean that up? And, you know, it was probably the first interaction Mike had had with me in that new position. And there was just kind of a stunned look in his eyes for a moment. And then he went and he got the mop and he cleaned it up. Later that week, Mike came to my office and he just, he said, I have to confess something to you. He said, I have to confess that, that leading is really a lot more earthy than I thought it was. And that it is far less glamorous than I thought it would be. And yet, that's the place of true leadership. It's not about the glamour, but it's about becoming part of that soil that is around you taking that position that is low, of doing the thing that seems menial, that God might be honored. When Peter speaks of leading or shepherding, it is to come from a place of true humility. And Peter has some different ways that he calls these people to lead humbly. Some different ways they can do this. The first one is this, and these aren't in your notes, so there are no blanks to fill in. And so here's, here's something I might suggest. If you want to remember it, you might write it down without a blank. Okay? I know that's challenging. For some of you, that blank is, you know, gold to you. But just write it down. If otherwise, just listen. Or do that other thing that you do when you're not writing in the bank or not listening. And I'm not sure what that is, and we won't even go there. But here's the thing. First, they were willing. These shepherds are to be willing. The shepherd is not doing it because he has to, but because he wants to. You think about the things in your life that are kind of the have-tos of life. All the things that you do because, yeah, man, i got to do that. Have to do that. When Peter describes leading as a shepherd of this flock, he says, I want you to do it from a place of willingness. It's an interesting thing that at one point in the Gospels, in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, I give my life willingly. No one has taken it from me. I give it. Oftentimes when we lead, it can be about people taking something from us rather than us voluntarily giving. And that's one of the ways this word gets translated. That word willing is to volunteer. This is not a draftee. This is someone who is giving of themselves willingly. willingly. 
Now, the thing that precludes that is when it's about me, when it's about selfishness. And that seems to get in the way of this kind of willing heart that God longs for us to have. One of the things I think that helps understand that willingness or propel that willingness is the sense that these sheep are valuable to God. You got a sense that these are something incredibly valuable. That's you. That you are incredibly valuable to God. And if someone is coming alongside you to bring influence in their life, in your life, you should be sensing that they value you the way God values you. Oftentimes I think I, it's easy just to see the sheep as commodities to be managed. You know? Get people to the right places, make sure they're doing the right things. Rather than gifts to be nurtured. And I hope that in the places that you are leading, because in some way, shape, or form, we all are all leaders. We all have influence somewhere. And as we have that influence, are you doing it out of a place of willingness? You see, how I see the sheep will influence how I respond to the sheep. If the sheep are just commodities, you'll respond to them that way. If they're those that God values and says these are gifts, you'll treat them that way. The second thing is that they sacrifice. Not only are they willing, but they sacrifice. They consider what they can give more than what they can get. I find that a helpful question in this point in time is... You know, if, if I'm asking this to myself, what am I going to get out of this? Then I may need to check my motives. Because that's not about sacrifice. An appropriate question might be, what is Jesus going to get out of this? But when I begin to just wonder, what's it going to do for me? I'm probably not shepherding from the right motive. I'm probably not trying to influence from the right place. It's a word, when Peter says it, not pursuing dishonest gain, it's kind of a word associated with greed. I want more, so how can I use the sheep to get me more? So how might your actions maybe communicate to others that they're just a product to be exploited? That's not the way of the good shepherd. The third thing they do in this whole leading humbly is that they lead by example. It says, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. You see, they live a life worthy of following rather than pressuring conformity by fear and intimidation. You see, humility manifests itself in shepherding or in leading through care. Not through coercion. Good shepherds use the force of example over the force of will. And you see, one of the things that we need to understand is, is that setting an example, being an example, is probably the most powerful teaching tool you have. If you want people to truly understand and learn the lesson that is of 
of God and from God, live the lesson. Be the example. Even Jesus, when he was in that upper room, before he ever told them what to do, lived out what he wanted them to do. When I was growing up, uh, probably a person that was uh, the, one of the primary mentors in my life was a man named Chuck Miller. And he still is. And I'm grateful for that. But I met him when I was 14 years old. And at 14 years old, uh, you know, I was just entering high school and it was kind of a wild moment for me. And um, I remember he came to be the youth pastor at the church I was in. And as the youth pastor, you know, you thought about all the great things he was going to do and you wanted to kind of be close to the new guy, the new leader, kind of, you get close in, a little status there. And Chuck was amazing because he'd get a group of us together and he'd say, I'd love for you to come over to my house and we'll talk about the ministry. And I, you know, for me, meetings were those kinds of places you'd get together, strategize, come up with the next big thing, next big plan kind of moments. At least those were the meetings I had been used to. I came to Chuck's house and he'd sat us down in a meeting where the first thing he did was he said, hey, open your Bibles to this passage in Mark. We all kind of sat there and said, well, where's the agenda? You know, We opened our Bibles to this passage in Mark and for the next hour, all we did was spend time listening to the Lord in that passage and then responding out of that what God was saying. And we shared that with one another. That was 95% of the meeting. 5% was sitting around talking about the strategy and whatever the vision was. 95% was just sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening for his voice. That left a profound impression on me. I'm not sure I understood it at the age of 15 or 14 years old. But it kept being ingrained in me. Every time I hung out with this guy, he just had us in the scriptures. He just said, let's go be with God again. And it began to sink into me that the highest priority I can have is to be with God again. To abide. And how often in our lives, those kinds of things, we tell others, you know, it would be a good idea if you spent time with God. But they've never seen an example of it. Are you living the example? Or are you basically just telling people the thing, next thing you would like them to do? Boy, I've got a lot to learn. Notice when Jesus commissions Peter that his leading is to be characterized by feeding. He says this, When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to Simon, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Isn't it incredible that the way Jesus wanted Peter to express love 
was through the way he took care of the sheep. When you lead or influence people, do they sense that they've been nourished or just depleted by your influence? Is shepherding the sheep just a means to accomplish your ends? Are the sheep just feeling used and eventually used up? You see, leading humbly for Peter means shepherding willingly, sacrificially, and by example. All those are the ways that Peter describes these shepherds. So how can we function appropriately in God's flock? Well, not only by leading humbly, but also learning humbly. That imperative to learn humbly. I think in my life I missed so many opportunities growing up to really learn from my dad. My dad was an incredible guy. I mean, he was a... He loved the scriptures. He'd spend every morning just sitting at the feet of Jesus and listening. I had a great example going on before me in my household. I'm not sure that when I was eating my bowl of cereal, I was paying much attention to it. But seriously, it was a great example to me. I'm not sure I took advantage of all those opportunities to learn from my father. My dad was a doctor. And uh, man, he, he practiced medicine for probably over half his life. And what an incredible thing to think how much he loved doing medicine. He loved being a surgeon. He did. He just loved it. I remember as a boy, I'd come, he'd come home from work and he'd have these huge patches of blood on his boxer shorts. And he'd say, I had a great day today. And I just say, you are so twisted. <laughs> man, oh man. He loved doing surgery. So when the time came that he didn't do surgery anymore, when the time came where basically his eyes and his hands were not at a place where you'd really want him doing surgery on you, and he gave that up, he wasn't resentful. He didn't wish for what was. But I watched a man embrace the new purpose God had for him with grace and contentment. There is so much that I missed in learning from my father. There were so many opportunities. And I wonder if there may be some opportunities now that I might be miss missing the lessons that God has for me. You see, the word that Peter uses here is submission. It carries with it the idea of placing yourself under another. Much like an apprentice might put himself under a master teacher. And I want us to think about this idea of submission, these, this place of learning in that way. It's acknowledging that authority that is there and submitting to that authority and to the lessons learned under that authority. In the case of those younger that Peter is describing here, he's presenting to them the optimum way to grow in their faith. It's through submitting to those that know more. 
In some ways, those youngers were shepherds in training. Paying attention to those in authority was going to benefit them not only in that present moment, but it was going to have lasting effect in the very way they shepherded. <coughs> to gain from the wisdom and experience of those that are more mature is really a gift that only the learner gets to participate in. There's so many opportunities to learn if we will humble ourselves and submit to those lessons that God has for us along the way. I remember coming here in, uh, to Modesto in, uh, about six years ago. And uh, I went and spoke at a retreat that the church was having for some small group leaders. And I remember after I had finished on Saturday night, I was going to go home, drive home, and it was pouring rain. And I thought, I want to get home. I need to be at the service the next morning, things like that. And I went out to my car, and I was just about in my car getting out of the rain when all of a sudden there was a young man behind me. And he kind of, he said, excuse me. And I turned around and he said, I just wanted to introduce myself. And he did. And then he said, you know, I've been hoping that I could find somebody that would be a mentor for me. Would you be a mentor for me? Now, this guy, seriously, had known me for all of 12 hours. And I said, you're entrusting your life into the hands of someone who is completely incompetent. But I said, you know, I'd be happy to sit with you. For me, it has become one of those places of recognizing somebody who was genuinely desiring to learn humbly. And in that, I've watched somebody with great compassion, with great hunger for God, with a great sense of, I long to be like Jesus, and he's become more the teacher than I have. I want to give you a few qualities that might describe a learner. And so I want you just to kind of pay attention to these. The first one is that a learner humbly acknowledges the vast expanse of what is not known to him. He's the opposite of the know-it-all. So the question is, do you still have a sense of wonder and mystery about God and about what God does? Or have you gotten your answers so tightly packaged that, you know, there really isn't any room for anything new from God. You see, every time I look at those boxes that I so easily create in my life, of all my answers that I've kind of derived, God keeps blowing the walls off the boxes and saying, I'm bigger than that. Your answer will not do enough to describe me. I think admitting that I don't have all the answers is one of the hardest places that I go. I'm a pastor in a church. Oftentimes people come to me with questions. And one of the most difficult things for me to do is tell them, I don't know. And I'm sure in some of their minds they think, but you're supposed to. You're supposed to know. Is there someone else I could go to? You have a large staff. Obviously there must be someone here that has an answer. And it's humbling. And boy, oh boy, there are a lot of questions I don't have answers to. A lot. But it gives me a great opportunity to be a good learner. Second thing is the, the learner humbly recognizes 
the value of those who know more. Maybe have experienced more. Again, we're in a place of where there are lots of people that have lived a bit further the journey of Christ, the journey of faith. What a great thing to know that you're surrounded by some people that might have a little bit more insight into the next step. Thirdly, the learner humbly recognizes that leading well begins with following well. My mentor Chuck Miller used to say, you earn the right to lead from up front by leading from within. When you follow well, you are basically becoming a better leader. And the last thing is this. The learner humbly recognizes that he is potentially the next generation's leader. Jesus was a learner. He described himself that way. From his very earliest, he put himself in places of submission. In Luke, it says, Then he went down to Nazareth with them, his parents, and was obedient to them. That's one of the first contexts that you can be a learner, just in the family. But then he says this in the Gospel of John. When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and I do nothing on my own initiative. But I speak these things as the Father taught me. Wow, is it amazing to, to imagine that Jesus is being taught? Do you think Jesus might have a few lessons he could teach us? A few ideas? You know, obviously he was there at the beginning of creation. I mean, he might have a few thoughts, and yet here is somebody who submits to what the Father is speaking. And he learns. Then in John 7, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Another way that Jesus comes and just describes himself as a learner. In the book of Proverbs, there's a phrase that says, the glory of young men is their strength, gray hair the splendor of the old. And it's giving this sense of roles. It's showing you that, you know, there's value in those that are young because they have a bit more energy, a bit more strength. But there's value in those that are old because they've lived a bit more and they know a bit more. There's wisdom there. Gray hair was always associated with wisdom. No hair, I'm not sure what that was associated with. But, but gray hair, associated with wisdom. Okay? What I want you to understand is that there is a symbiosis here, a symbiotic relationship between old and young. They need each other. They help each other. And they also learn from each other. It's not just that younger are always learning from uh, older, but sometimes, you know, the older are learning from the younger. You see, God wants us to be lifelong learners. And one of the things that we recognize is that with this strength and this wisdom piece, that when you have guidance without strength, it's pretty powerless. It doesn't go real far. But when you have strength without guidance, it tends to produce wreckage rather than wholeness. We need to function well in the flock. If we're going to do that, you need to be a humble learner. The third thing here, how can we function appropriately in God's flock is by heeding the imperative to let go humbly. This is the place of surrender. 
calls me to surrender my pride and my own capacity to live life independently of God. But it also is a place of control. When I hold my cares, I'm trying to retain control and live with the illusion that really I can do this on my own. Peter said this, Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. I believe that when Peter is talking about humility here, that idea of casting your cares is the very way he sees it expressed. The word cast means to throw. It means to basically just kind of throw this stuff off, but with an intended target. And that intended target is the Lord. When we throw our cares on God, we discover that he's far more capable of dealing with whatever the stuff of our life is than we are. When we throw our cares on God, we're embracing that act of humility, which communicates that we're not able to do this on ourselves or by ourselves. So casting our cares on God really is an act of humility. Holding our cares, holding on to them, isn't so much selfishness as it is pride. The pride that says, I don't need anybody's help. Peter calls us to humble ourselves. And I know that this week, that humility for me has meant really experience again that command to cast my cares on God. This last week, I had my plans all straight. Did you have all your plans straight? Did you know what you were going to do? Did you have it well agended and planned out, scheduled? I did. And then God interrupted it. And he interrupted it several times, so I was looking and just going, okay, God, you're adding more to my plate, and really I was hoping you'd take a few things off. And in that place, God drove me to something that I needed to do, which was to take these things that were stressing me, of concern to me, hopes that I had and bring them to him and give them to him. You see, it's much easier for me to tell you to do it than to practice it myself. And I believe God just said, John, before you're ever going to get up there, you're going to be practicing this all week long and hopefully maybe learn a few things. Some of the things we might discover in letting go. Letting go creates space in which God's care can be experienced. I'm often bearing burdens that I never was intended to bear. But when I let go of my cares to God, he's free to fill the space with his care. Letting go allows God's hand to be the primary shaping influence as he presses into the clay of my life. When I shape myself, I'm just pretty pathetic. I look funny. And then letting go acknowledges God's capacity to carry the burden we bear and to experience his powerful care. you got to understand this. God's shoulders are big enough to handle whatever you got. There is nothing so large that God cannot hold it. Jesus said, so do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. 
So I hear that verse, and this is the question I feel God is asking me. Why is it that I always seem to seek God last when it comes to my cares and concerns? In casting my cares on God, I'm acknowledging humbly that I'm helpless rather than holding on to my cares as though somehow I can do this on my own. If I'm going to cast my cares, my anxiety, I have to first of all admit that I have cares and anxiety. I have to admit, and some of us are just living in a big place of denial, that we're stressed, that life is hard. I have to first admit that I have cares. Secondly, I have to be mindful of the fact that I'm helpless, that there is nothing I can do, that I'm utterly without the strength, thoroughly helpless to do anything about those cares. And finally, I must acknowledge and have faith that God does care for me. And that one may be the most difficult. You see, I think for many of us, we live with this sense that God cares about certain things, but he doesn't care about everything. And that oftentimes we wonder whether, gosh, if I bring this to God, will he do something about it? And our faith is at a crisis point in those moments. You see, this is really a faith question. Do we believe that God cares for us? Do you believe that God cares for you? And every day of your life, that is tested. Because every day that you hold on to your cares is a day that you're saying, God must not care. Every day that you choose to hold on to the stress and hold on and do it yourself, keep control, you're basically saying, I'm really not sure that God cares for me the way he says he does. Cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. Under God's mighty hand, I find that I'm sheltered beneath those nail-imprinted hands that express his care. And those hands are pressing in not only to shelter, but to shape me so I'm more in his image. So I'm marked by those nail-imprinted hands of his care, and that I might express that care out of that place. So this morning, remember in all things, be humble before God. It positions us to receive his grace that we might better extend his grace to others. I have a visual aid. You like visual aids? It doesn't really matter whether you like them or not. I've got one. Too much more and I'll pass out. <laughs> if I blow up this balloon, it's full of my hot air. But if I have a balloon, 
and I fill it with helium, it becomes this wonderful orb floating in the heavens. I want you to imagine for a moment that you're this balloon. That your lives are that balloon which can either be full of ourselves or full of God's life-giving spirit lifting us into the places of his glory and his grace. The simple question is, how does God want you to function in this flock? How might you lead humbly, learn humbly, and let go humbly that God might care for you and care through you? We come now to the time of communion. I'm going to invite the ushers to come forward, and in this moment, we're reminded that, again, of that upper room moment where Jesus humbled himself. He took on human likeness. He wrapped a towel around his waist and he gave his life for humanity. His humiliation is the way of our transformation into new creatures. As you take the bread this morning that symbolizes his broken body, the body that was humbled for you, as you take the cup this morning, that represents the blood that was shed for you. I'm going to invite you just to be quiet, to hold those elements just for a moment and reflect. What is God saying to you this morning? But then, rather than as our usual practice might be that we'd all take it together, I'm just going to invite you to take it when you sense God calling you to take that bread and that cup. And that might be right away. We have some music that will be here and we'll be just kind of worshiping. But linger at the table with Jesus. And those in the venue, you're going to come forward and you're going to take the bread and the cup there. And then you're going to go back to your seat. And just at the time that God calls you to, you're going to just, as individuals, take that cup and that bread. This morning, we come to the table together. We come to the one who humbled himself that we might know life. Let me pray. Father, we ask now that you would help us in this time to remember your great sacrifice for us. May we be humbled before you as you came in humility to us. We thank you for this opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen.